Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Once again, I wanted to remind people who are listening to this of a few different things that help support the podcast. If uh, you're just listening to this as a one-off on the website, uh, please go and subscribe uh, in your preferred podcasting app to get it delivered as soon as it is released. Uh, if you're already subscribed, well, thank you. Uh, and then please go rate and review the podcast wherever that makes sense. I think for most people that's still iTunes. Uh, and I know that the ratings and reviews, especially on iTunes, really help people find the podcast. Uh, so we really appreciate any help you can give us there. And finally, if you really, really like the podcast, as you obviously should, uh, and you want to directly support us, uh, please consider supporting it on Patreon at patreon.com slash Now, on to today's show. Uh, one of the key themes that I think about all the time, and actually was really one of the, the main reasons why I started TechTurt in the first place, is to have a chance to take a step back from the way things are done and to sometimes reevaluate if that's how things really need to be done or if there are better ways to do different things. Uh, we often get locked into certain paradigms and that don't always make sense, especially as technology changes. I'm also something of a perpetual optimist uh, that, uh, and believe that changes in technology and innovation uh, often open up new opportunities to create a, a better world uh, if implemented well. And I will uh, freely admit that things are not always implemented well and that some innovations can lead to, to problems or challenges. But I, I like to take the optimistic viewpoint in the long term. And that's why I was interested recently to learn about the Center for Innovative Governance Research, uh, which is a DC-based nonprofit think tank that is exploring new methods of governance and beyond the sort of traditional uh, thought of the nation state as the uh, central being in, in uh, determining governance. So this includes exploring things like charter cities, refugee cities, uh, special autonomous zones, and technology zones. And these can allow for experimentation and competition on a more flexible and granular level and might help develop better long-term, larger-scale models of governance as well. It's a big idea in a time that I think needs optimistic big ideas. And that's why I'm happy to welcome Tamara Winter to the podcast to talk about it. Tamara is the communications lead for the Center for Innov Innovative Governance Research. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Yes, thanks so much for having me. So for the folks who don't follow this stuff and don't think about this stuff, can you sort of lay out the general vision of thinking uh, around the, the center and uh, the way that you guys view alternative forms of governance? Yeah, so just over a year ago, Mark Letter, um, the founder of the center, founded the center, and our goals are twofold. Um, the big priority is in creating the ecosystem for charter cities. So the thinking on this is that 
in the long run, the most important determinant of your country's economy is going to be its governance. So mm -hmm. countries that have great governance tend to do well, not just in the short run, but in the long run. And then countries with poor forms of governance tend to lag behind, even accounting for things like natural resources, proximity to natural waterways, and so on. Um, and so the idea is that if you can import good governance, right, then you've done something for low and middle income countries that can allow them to jumpstart growth, um, again, for long periods of time. Right. Uh, so the primary way that we do this is by charter cities, right, by creating the ecosystem for charter cities. And so a charter city is a new city with a special jurisdiction that allows it um, a broadly blank slate in commercial law, right, so they can adopt the best practices in governance. Um, and so there are some proto-charter cities that you can look at around the world. Places like Singapore, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, and Dubai are all places in which, to one extent or the other, sort of created their um, governance systems from scratch or by borrowing from existing um, best practices from around the world. Yeah, and, and that's really interesting. And, and I sort of first became aware of the, the concept of charter cities in a slightly different context, but but similar, I think. And, and um, the economist Paul Romer, who actually was the most recent Nobel uh, economics uh, recipient, um, a few years back, he had sort of launched this big program on, on charter cities. And, and part of his idea for it, which was interesting, and I, and I don't know where you focus, whether it's sort of um, mainly on those cities that, that you just mentioned, you know, his idea was questioning whether or not you could take the good governance of one place and basically import that into somewhere else. And so, you know, there were, he was talking about, you know, taking the maybe legal framework and institutions of say, you know, Canada and importing it somewhere that had had, you know, more trouble. And so the, the example and uh, that he had used for a while, and I know there was a program there that, that had failed, though maybe getting restarted, I guess, was Honduras, where they had looked at importing some, some Canadian rules and institutions and frameworks into a city in Honduras to see if they could, you know, fix some of the problems that were associated with, with poor levels of governance. That's right. And so uh, Paul Romer was really the person who popularized charter cities. He's a great TED Talk that your listeners can listen to if they're curious about how exactly the model works. But there is a key distinction between how he was thinking about charter cities and how um, we think about charter cities. Okay. So part of his model was um, you'd have a guarantor country. So it wasn't just that you'd import the rules um, of one country's legal system, but that country would literally guarantee um, the charter city, kind of administer the charter city in a low-income country. Mm. And um, that fails for, really, for political reasons. So the reason these, the center exists is to kind of solve the binding constraint to the creation of charter cities, which turns out to be, as he found out in Honduras, politics. So we work with, <laughs> we yes. work with the key stakeholders. It's always politics. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> so um, what we do and what we 
aspire to continue to do is to serve as kind of the shelling point um, for charter cities, for the various mm. stakeholders. So those are going to be people like entrepreneurs. There are a lot of people, uh, particularly in Silicon Valley, who are interested in new city development, but um, aren't really sure what the deal flow looks like. There are governance that are, of course, very interested in improving the lives of their citizens, um, but it's quite hard to start with national level reforms that have to gain buy-in from a lot of different stakeholders. There are economists who are interested in new city development, but because there aren't, you know, currently any charter cities in existence, it's hard to get career points for studying things with data sets that don't already exist. Um, (laughs) There are new city developments, right, which um, are coming up all the time, especially in the developing world. And you could see how just even improving the governance in those places would just um, make the cities even more valuable, make the developments even more valuable. Um, You have humanitarians who are looking at issues like climate change and migration, um, demographic transitions that are going to be affecting um, most of the world's populations in the next hundred years or so. So there are a lot of interested parties in charter cities. And so what we work to do is to unite them all, um, to give them a shared vision of what charter cities are and how they can benefit low and middle income countries. And second, to help create teams on the ground that actually build these charter cities. Right. And so, I mean, are there any are there any sort of interesting developments going on now? I mean, I, I as I mentioned, you know, I had followed it when, when Romer sort of was first popularizing it and, and had certainly followed some of what he had attempted to do in Honduras, but I I have not followed the space that closely um, over the last few years. So so catch me up. What what are sort of the latest developments? Where where should we be excited to be looking? Yeah. So the, our first project that we are collaborating with is called Nkwashi. It's a mm-hmm. city being built just about 30 minutes outside of Lusaka, Zambia. And hmm. it's a 3,100 acre development being built for about 100,000 residents. Um, it will feature, when completed, a business district, an industrial park, and a university, which is kind of the cornerstone of the model. Um, it's being built by an asset management firm called Tebe Investment Management. Uh, it's a Zambian asset management firm. Uh, the CEO, Muya Musokotwane, is a brilliant man. He's a friend of mine and Mark's. And so he reached out to Mark, I guess it was just about a year ago this time. And um, that was our, our first collaboration. So back in December, we went to Zambia. We met with um, several government officials, two of whom, of whom uh, were cabinet level. And we basically kind of spelled out what we thought would be the process to um, create charter cities legislation in Zambia. So that's Mm -hmm. our current first project. We'll be going back next month um, just to kind of deliver a concept note to them. And then we hope to have um, MOUs signed by June. So that's super exciting. Um, And and what's the, is is there a a focus or a particular goal of of that particular charter city? Is there something that you're really trying to to experiment with there? Yeah, so... um, So what we're asking for there is a blank slate in commercial law, um, Mm -hmm. separate commercial dispute resolution, uh, jurisdiction over things like taxation and labor law, um, and then a process of incorporation by which you can incorporate more land without having to ask to do so. Mm -hmm. So what we're asking for there is not something that would specifically benefit Nkwashi, which is going to be built either way, but rather for legislation or an executive order, something that allows for um, any landowner with um, a certain amount of land above a certain threshold uh, to be able to create their own charter cities. And Hmm. so that's the ask there, right? So the goal is that by importing 
best practices. So these is things like rule of law, um, right. by making it much easier to start a business. It takes about half of per capita income currently in sub-Saharan Africa to start a business. Right. That, of course, makes it very difficult for the tons of entrepreneurs that we know exist in the developing world. Um, so the idea is that if you can solve some of these key barriers to growth there, you can make Zambia one of the best places to do business in sub-Saharan Africa. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, and sorry, I, I interrupted you, though, before, before you finished just talking about the, is there is there anything more on that city or? Yeah, so that's the first city. Um, mm -hmm. And we'll be kind of having our big coming out party, our Charter Cities inaugural conference um, in October in Johannesburg that we're really excited about. There's also a project in Honduras that is in the very early stages. Um, mm -hmm. That company has just been formed. And so we'll be watching that very closely. And then we're in very early discussions with Rendever, which is the largest urban real estate developer in sub-Saharan Africa. So they've got about seven projects in five different countries and they've got a flagship project uh, just outside of um, just outside of Nairobi which is called Tattoo City and so that's a bit earlier stage um, but we're very optimistic about the future and then we've got a couple others in the pipeline as well that are too early to talk about but we're hoping to <laughs> have about five incubated this year oh wow that's 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 really interesting and then um you know, is the focus on on particular types of, of regulatory structures and and uh, and institutions that you're sort of trying to set up in these, or is it is it just to sort of allow for different kinds of experimentation across across the board in each of them? Yeah. So the big goal is the second, right? To allow for mm -hmm. different kinds of experimentation. So we have a model we think does kind of lend itself to growth in the long term. So these are, again, things like rule of law um, by having, you know, a really clearly defined court system so that it's easy to bring uh, disputes to it such that the transaction costs for any given business transaction are much lower. Um, right. These are things that we think are really important and in integral to a system that's going to function properly over time. But the idea is that, you know, any landowners would be able to kind of create their own charter cities. So as we have conversations about this in the office, uh, often maybe there would be a socialist charter city. Um, we don't think it would work, but the idea <laughs> right. is that you'd be able to experiment with different models of governance. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's kind of what I find most interesting about this, right? I mean, it's, it's the idea that... Um, you could have these experiments and you could have them on a small scale and you could, you know, begin to see how, you know, how the different the different models interact and sort of what works and what doesn't. Now, um, one thing that that and, and this is not this is not a criticism per se, but, you know, one thing um, for, for the longest time I kept seeing, you know, uh, this is this has become less so in the last few years, but but maybe going back ten or fifteen years, one of the things that was really popular was all of these uh, officials from different countries would come out here to Silicon Valley, where I am, and want to talk about how do we build our own Silicon Valley. And and for the longest time, you would have um, these you know things that were named Silicon something, you know, <laughs> Silicon <laughs> Mountain, Silicon Island, Silicon Bluff, Silicon, you know, Prairie, all of these different things where everyone was sort of insisting that they were going to set up their own, you know, Silicon Valley of, of some sort. And all, basically all of those flopped and they, and they were sort of disasters. And, and, you know, I have my suspicions as to why that didn't work. But, you know, there are times when I and, and I'm really excited about the idea of charter cities and, and autonomous zones and all of these kinds of concepts. But sometimes I worry about, you know, 
um, the reasons why certain areas become really successful as opposed to other areas are often not as obvious as, as people think. And so when people sort of come in and purposefully try and set up a structure in one way and say, this is going to, you know, allow entrepreneurship to bloom or whatever, um, you know, that doesn't always work. And so how much thought, if, if any, has been given to, you know, to, to that, to the fact that, you know, it's, it, it, it's sort of tough to come in and, and, you know, from your mind, you know, create a, a really successful, innovative place. That's right. And I think the, the core of a charter city, right, because a lot of times um, new cities, special cities, whatever you want to call them, are thought of as a mechanism from exit as for exit from some right. existing regime. Uh, now, a charter city kind of inverts that, right? So we know, for example, that in the very poorest countries and in developing countries, um, it's quite hard to enter any sort of formal marketplace, right? The informal marketplace yep. is huge, right? And so we have we see higher rates of entrepreneurship in the developing world than we do in the developed world. But of course, that's because it's, again, largely, mostly informal, right? So there are a thousand right. ways to be an entrepreneur, but there are about 2,000 <laughs> ways to run afoul of the government or this entity or that entity or the police or whatever. Right. So, um, so often, I mean, basically, what you're talking about is effectively black market or gray market kind of entrepreneurs, right? So, so it's it's entrepreneurial in, in every way, uh, but it may ru actually run afoul of the law. Right, exactly. So that's just yeah. kind of a just a definitional difference between I guess I think the the different ways of looking at new cities and their potential. Yep. But as far as um, making sure that uh, the cities are able to be successful, I think this is why we have a really strong preference for local developers that are already. Um, mm -hmm. building a city, right? So in Kwashi, before we came along, it was already being built. The first residents are moving in this year. And the business plan that was created for Nkwashi uh, existed long before Muya ever met Mark. Um, so these private developers that do have the financial incentive to think really carefully about um, the systems that they're setting up, but also know the local conditions, I think are much better positioned to create successful cities than people who do so from a 30,000 foot level. Um, so what we focus on specifically are how to kind of 10x those gains or even 100x those gains by uh, allowing them to operate within um, governing systems that, again, we've seen work, um, not just here in the U.S., but in, again, places like Singapore and Shenzhen and, mm -hmm. and Dubai. Yeah, it's it's interesting stuff, and and uh, you know, as I said, it it sometimes takes a little while. Like I, I I think back to you know when I first saw Paul Romer's original talk on this, um, and I I will admit that at first I didn't get it. <laughs> it's just like you know I I didn't fully understand the the concept uh, behind it, and then you know over time it began to began to make more and more sense to me. You know, in terms of recognizing that if you're it's it's a combination of different factors right i mean to to build sort of a successful society of of you know whatever size you're targeting you know actually having to to incorporate you know different institutions and rules and and laws that make sense and that that fit um is sort of the most important thing and so it's 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 an interesting way of looking at it now uh before we we started this podcast and we were talking about what we were going to talk about one of the things that that you mentioned um was what i guess might be considered one of the earlier ideas for a charter city <laughs> uh depending on how you look at it which was 
uh, Walt Disney's original concept for for Epcot, right? Um, it, it, do you consider that to be sort of uh, the, the the proto charter city to, to some extent in, in terms of what his original vision was? I do. Yeah, it's so funny because even today, um, Disney World and I guess more broadly Celebration Florida, Celebration Florida kind of retain um, certain measures of autonomy. But yeah, Disney World was kind of the proto American charter city. So Walt Disney, of course, um, in his vision for Epcot, and I didn't actually know this until I became kind of obsessed with this a few months ago, but <laughs> Epcot stands for the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, and it just doesn't get more charter cities than that. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, his plans were nothing short of incredible. Uh, Disneyland was a great testing ground for for new ideas, right? Disneyland has the the first daily operating um, monorail in the in the U.S., right? Um, it's a place that inspires both nostalgia, but also a relentless sense of optimism about the future. Um, and Disney World was going to expand on that, right? So the idea there yep. was that you'd have different forms of transit, um, cars would be underground, and it would be a, uh, the pedestrian would be king, is what he said in that initial video. And he called it the community of tomorrow that will never be completed, right? And I think when you think about um, Disney World, you can't really separate it from the cultural context in which, you know, Walt Disney existed, right? It's a time mm -hmm. in which we're going to the moon. We are just kind of, um, we, I wasn't alive then, but, but <laughs> Americans were just kind of enraptured with um, American state capacity. It just seemed boundless. And so mm -hmm. that sheer optimism, that belief in a definite positive future, I think really comes through in, in Walt's original plans for, for Disney World. And, uh, you know, it's, it is amazing. And I recommend people go look at the, the video. Um, and hopefully I'll remember, we'll try and link to it in, with the show notes. Um, because it is, it's, it's really incredible. It is not what, what Disney World or Epcot became um, by, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, it had a, a much bigger vision of, you know, really uh, uh, what a small city, uh, a, a very modern small city could be like, um, you know, including uh, not just sort of the amusement park aspect, though that was included in it, but also where people would live and how they would live and, and factories and an industrial center and uh, all of this kind of unique stuff that was, that was really interesting. Um, and and you you look at it and, and you think like wow that that could be you know that that could have been a really interesting development which I think you know if it had been built um, certainly would have influenced the way other cities develop and and um, it's it it is also interesting when you think about it. I, I I actually don't remember what year that video was was made and do you know off the top of your head I don't. Um, but it's 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 interesting to think that around that time, uh, that was also the same time that we were um, sort of, you know, actual city uh, development was was, uh, I, I would say, in its down period <laughs> that, that you were having these sort of really um, uh, terribly designed cities that were you know cutting off communities and, you know, putting in more. Uh, much more, you know, uh, freeway, highway focused, um, you know, taking away pedestrian routes and and really sort of going in the other direction than 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 Disney actually went in. And it's interesting now to see, you know, a lot of cities uh, in the last, you know, few couple decades, I would say, have really sort of gone back to that. And, you know, 
knocked out. Uh, you know, there, there are so many cities now that, that had these awful, you know, freeways along whatever waterway they, they were uh, that, that, you know, so there was no pedestrian access to the various waterways. And, and one by one, you know, San Francisco, uh, out here where I am, it, it was forced upon us by an earthquake. <laughs> That's not <laughs> uh, funny. I shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. Well, it's, it's pretty far in the past at this point. But like, you know, lots of other cities have sort of gone through that same transformation. And then you look at this video that that Disney, you know, put forth and he had this same vision for, you know, much more, you know, uh, you know, much more pedestrian traffic and and the ability to, to in his case, you know, he wanted to move the freeways underground almost entirely. Um, it's it's it's, a, it's a sort of a really interesting vision. I do wonder how cities would have developed if if his vision had had come to fruition and more people could have you know learned from it and recognized it. There is a little bit of good news, right? So, and I believe it was, um, this is in the 60s, probably, I want to say 66, but if that's wrong, mm -hmm. I'm sure somebody will tell you. So, sure. <laughs> yes. um, so even though it really fell quite short of, of Disney's expectations, it did, the, the attention to mixed-use zoning did end up influencing other suburban developments that did place a higher priority on sort of like an urban-esque mm -hmm. feel. So at least there's a small victory, but Actually, way across the pond in, in France, uh, the Val d'Europe, and again, somebody will probably tell you that I pronounced that incorrectly, um, <laughs> the sort of Disney world of France did quite well, actually. So um, it was kind of the same sort of idea, except it was done as a, it was built as a public-private partnership with the government. And right. so it was very true to the ideals that he had, you know, making the pedestrian king. Um, it had about 4,000 re residents when it first opened. Today it has over 30,000 and it's growing. Hmm. Um, so when you look at, you know, how it failed here, in the same ways that it failed here, it succeeded quite beautifully in France. So, so that's huh. the good news. That's interesting. That's interesting. I, I had no idea. I didn't know that. I've always, um, I, I just remember when Disney launched Euro Disney that it was generally considered a, a joke and a flop. But <laughs> that's actually how it was considered in America as well. Quite trivial and just kind of silly. Yeah. Um, but you know, hindsight is the best teacher. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's really. That's very interesting. Now, one of the other things that certainly some people, you know. Uh, sort of reacted to kind of like the Disney vision on things was that some of them found it, I would say, um, slightly dystopian <laughs> where, and so you have this interesting thing where like, I think, you know, a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of the interest and excitement is over this idea of, um, you know, experimentation and, and, um, you know, seeing what happens with these different, you know, cities or zones or, or whatever, where you can, um, experiment in, in different ways and have different, different structures of regulation, um, different institutions, different ways of, of going about things that hopefully make things, you know, better and easier for, for, um, for, for entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, but, you know, some element of it, there's, you know, with, with like the, the Disney viewpoint, it was very much like this is the way Walt Disney envisions this particular city. And so it was this sort of top-down view and he had a very specific idea in mind. And so I, sometimes I do wonder if there's like a, a, a mental conflict there <laughs> between like the, um, you know, sort of top-down view of, you know, how do you develop a, a you know, a, a utopian sort of charter city setup for what you want that, that avoids the sort of, um, 
potential dystopian view of you know the the uh, uh, dictatorial presence of whoever decides how how the whole thing is set up <laughs> yeah i think this is one of the reasons why a lot of the charter cities movements kind of the early ones fell apart so a lot mm -hmm. of them were heavily dependent on the first two projects rather were quite dependent on romer right so mm -hmm. um, the projects rise and fall with with one person that's a, a great recipe for um, nothing yeah. ever being successful and even in the disney case right walt disney died about two months after he laid out his plans for disney world and i think you see that in the execution of disney world so that's right. why in our workings it's so important to think about not like one entrepreneur or one government or one um, new city development, but rather the entire ecosystem of interested actors in charter cities, right? You have these different stakeholders, which extend from the individual city governments themselves to uh, multilateral institutions like the World Bank uh, and like the IMF. And you want all of these groups to, one, have their concerns addressed, um, but two, to be really bought in on a charter city, right? Because right. Um, a lot of these projects fail because there are a lot of different stakeholders that have some knowledge, but almost none that have all of them. And so mm -hmm. um, we kind of exist as the shelling point between these different groups, um, but to the extent that they can collaborate on their own or with us, that's that's really important as well. And I think that's one way that you mitigate this um, this sort of central locus of control that's just like one person. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, so so with any of these discussions, I think, you know, one of the examples that, that people raise, and I think you may have mentioned it earlier, is like Shenzhen in, in China, right? Which is, is sort of an example, not necessarily of a charter city, but of sort of uh, uh, a technology zone, right? Where effectively you know china allowed this particular area to to have certain rules that that helped enable um you know sort of a, a very rapid uh you know uh, industrialization for for technology and and manufacturing um and so you know have you guys done work there or studied what sort of what happened there um, so we haven't done work there, but actually we just got a paper. I'll have to send it to you afterwards so um, you can link it in the show notes. Sure. But Mark actually just sent me a really great uh, chapter summary of a book, I think it was, about kind of detailing why exactly Shenzhen um, took off in the way that the other special economic zones in China didn't, right? So in 1980, it's a poor fishing village. There's about 30,000 people living there. It's it's a rural area. Today, there are upwards of 16 million people living there. It's the manufacturing yeah. capital of the world. It's a center of biotech in the world. And um, it's not always obvious, right, like why that would be the yeah. success story among the others. So I'll link it to you. Uh, I haven't actually gotten a chance to read it just yet, <laughs> okay. but I'm pretty excited to dig into it because um, it was nothing short of a miracle. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. And I, I don't know enough about it either. I mean, I've read some stuff here and there about it, but I haven't really studied it very closely. But I, I think it's it's fascinating. And I think it's, you know, some of what's fascinating, of course, is, you know, China being a, a communist country with, with you know, a, a very strong communist party. Uh, is one way to put it i guess you know and 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 part of what what the success story um with with shenzhen was was you know effectively allowing uh an, an 
entree for capitalism within that system. Um, and I, I think it would be really interesting to, to sort of deeply study how that how that worked and how that's worked out and sort of what that's led to today. Yeah, the World Bank sort of details this. Um, so the, the paper I'm thinking of is a report called Building Engines for Growth and Competitiveness in China. It's chapter two. Mm. Um, so for anybody who is really interested in reading more in depth about it, uh, it's a fantastic summary, Mark tells me. Cool. Yeah, yeah, that'll definitely be be worth uh, be worth exploring. Um, so, you know, one of the other things um, and this gets a little bit back at something I talked about earlier, but but I think it's interesting to explore. I mean, you talked about, you know, sort of bringing um, the rule of law and and you know, lowering the barriers for entrepreneurship. And I think these are um, important things and are are obvious and you can sort of intuitively understand the benefits. Is there anything that you've seen that to you at least is somewhat that may, may be counterintuitive, you know, uh, uh, you know, changes or structures or um, frameworks or institutions or whatever that, that, that you guys think are valuable for people to understand that don't necessarily seem um, as intuitive as maybe some of the other ones have? And so, so let me give you an example because that, that might feel like a weird question. <laughs> so, so, um, so I'm thinking in particular, and I'm going back to this idea that uh, I mentioned earlier of all these these uh, government officials who used to come here often from Europe. I'm trying to figure out how do they make a, a Silicon Valley. Um, and and I had this presentation that that I used to give um, to those officials. I, I somehow got on this list of of people that that. European politicians should visit to to do this presentation, which was I entitled "Why is Silicon Valley Silicon Valley?" Um, and in that presentation, what I do is I, I would go through sort of the obvious factors, the things that everyone immediately thinks about, um, which are you know the nice weather, the good universities, the the venture capital industry, all these things that everyone's like, yes, right, of course, and that's what people think. And and you would have everyone would say, okay, well, we need to have a good university. We need to have access to to uh, capital for for entrepreneurs. Um, but the point of the presentation was to then talk about the other things, the things that people don't think about or don't fully understand. And so in that case, um, I would talk about all these different studies that were actually really interesting about why Silicon Valley developed the way it was. And one of the elements of that was the fact that uh, we don't enforce uh, non-compete agreements, that that under the California business code, non-compete agreements are unenforceable. And that allowed for a tremendous amount of job hopping between companies and because of that, uh, a sort of informal network of information sharing that allowed for the big technological breakthroughs to happen that then allowed for there to be some really interesting competition at the at the company level. And so that's something that was sort of hidden and was was counterintuitive. Um, and, you know, and, and so I would have these discussions where like, you know, uh, officials from Europe would be surprised because they were like, well, you know, where we come from, uh, normally uh, people will stay with their same job for a really long time and they don't do a lot of job hopping. So that would be like a big cultural shift. And, you know, and, and um, there are all these things that, that they hadn't necessarily considered. So I'm wondering, is there anything that you guys have come across that, you know, seems sort of deeper in the weeds and a little bit less intuitive um, that seems to lead to maybe a good, good outcomes for, for these kinds of cities or zones? Yeah, so I guess as far as like coming across something in our study, um, most of 
most of what made these specific cities is, uh, successful is kind of like generally understood. So, for example, like bringing British judges to Singapore and to Dubai, uh-huh. right? Like that's a way to implement common law. Um, so those right. those general constituent parts, when we kind of reference these other cities, are like pretty straightforward. One thing that has been interesting for us to think about in uh, in the past couple of weeks is how you actually protect a charter city from expropriation, right? Yeah. Say a charter city does well. What is to say that the government won't just come in and take it? Um, right. Or, you know, people won't rebel against it in, in other um, neighboring cities, et cetera. So when we were just, we were recently out in San Francisco, we did a mini charter city summit at Founders Fund. And uh, when this explicit question was asked, uh, Muya, the CEO, of course, of Mkwashi said, I think the way that you do it is by listing it publicly. Uh, Hmm. People can like actually buy shares in the charter city. You have one, a distributed base of owners, and it's much less, uh, much more difficult to expropriate um, from that, that many uh, different stakeholders, right? So oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, that's, it, that's interesting. it's been a, yeah. uh, that was like a light bulb moment for me. I'm like tripping over <laughs> my words because I'm still thinking like that was such an interesting um, yeah. no, I mean, it's, mechanism. It, so that's, that's the it, one I'll be excited to see explored. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly not impossible, right? I mean, there have been, you know, uh, you know, publicly traded uh, firms that have been nationalized. It is possible, but it, does, it certainly would would piss off a lot more people, I think, and lead to lead to some some interesting challenges. But oh, that's that is a very interesting one. I like that. That's that's good to think about. Yeah, and so it'll be really exciting to see how that gets implemented. Um, so I'll look forward to it. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. All right, so to to sort of you know uh, round out the podcast, I mean, what 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 are the things that you're most excited about? Uh, I mean, you mentioned the the various cities that you're looking at and talking about right now. Um, you know, w- even looking maybe a little bit beyond that, what what do you think is going to be the most interesting thing over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, the the goal for us, right? We don't want to see one charter city or two charter cities or even five charter cities. We want to see dozens of these charter cities. So yeah. we'll hope to in ten years, right, be sort of an industry trade association where um, once we we get a big public win, so it's Mkwashi, it's the city in Honduras, it's whichever. Um, that will make it a lot easier to kind of find a process that works and then repeat this model, right? So Mark likes to call it charter cities in a box. Um, now, of course, <laughs> each new location will have its own sort of local challenges, and those will will definitely have to be kind of dealt with. But the idea is that you could repeat this model throughout the world. And so um, if this goes well, right, the goal that we are holding ourselves accountable to is to help lift tens of millions of people out of poverty, right? That's why the center right. exists. So that's what I'll look forward to. But kind of moving beyond charter cities to a more domestic focus, we're also looking at um, how can you make the best better, right? In the U.S., um, whether or not you think our systems are working well, uh, there's it is, you know, among the gold standards in the world, if not the gold standard in the world, which I tend to think it is. Um, so over here, we're thinking about how can we revitalize our institutions? How can we ensure that we uh, continue to be the global leader in technological progress and innovation? And so our America program, which we're still kind of thinking about at a very high level, and it'll be about 30% of what we do when we really get it going. That's kind of the next thing that we've got our eyes on. Great. 
That's very interesting. There should be uh, lots of stuff to pay attention to, and and uh, I'll be following you guys more closely now. And um, as these things go forward, would love to have you back on the podcast. You know, maybe in a couple of years and see where things are. Absolutely, yeah. We've got a Twitter page. It's at Innovative Governance. A Facebook page at the same name. We also have a newsletter. Um, so yeah, that's kind of uh, where you can follow our stuff. Cool. Well, uh, thank you very much for for uh, well the work that you do and for taking the time to join us on the podcast. This was great. Thanks so much, Mike. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Bye. Bye.